Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, it's Zach from The Show on the Road. We're off for a few more weeks preparing for our fourth season of episodes, but in the meantime, I'd like to try something we've never done on our fair program. I'm going to bring you an episode from another great music podcast. It's called Under the Radar, a cool new monthly show where host and producer Celine Tail Blucky talks to some incredible artists just to the side of the international spotlight. It's one such artist that I will bring you today that I probably would never have the chance to meet with. They call him Fantastic Negrito, and he's been asking one question all this year. And it may be that one cut-to-the-bone question we have all avoided asking ourselves during this strange and otherworldly time in our lives. Have you lost your mind yet? Has this year changed who you thought you were? Do you wake up in the morning like me sometimes and forget what you wanted to be? Honestly, there are so many reasons why an artist like Fantastic Negrito shouldn't even be here right now. He was a young boy named Xavier that was born into an Orthodox Muslim household as one of 13 children. He had to strike out on his own as a teen to roam the streets of Oakland, and he taught himself guitar, signed a million-dollar record deal as a protege of Prince, only to see it all slip away when a brutal accident nearly took his life and his playing hand away from him. I'll admit, I used to be one of those people that preferred their favorite songwriters to stay in a shroud of mystery, to never reveal what happened to them in their past. But for a performer like Fantastic Negrito, it's about taking that darkness from his past and spinning it into a golden light that he can share with others now. What Xavier has overcome is staggering. Look, the homeless population in Oakland is 70% black, despite blacks being only 20% of the population. On the opening line of the opening track of his New Wave Blues firebomb of a new record, he says, have you lost your mind yet? But he responds to his own question immediately. No, he has a better idea. Let's get free tonight. The world is watching, he says. Let's get free tonight. That's what music does for Xavier, and that's what music does for me. Anyway. Thanks for sticking with us as we get ready for our new season in January. We have episodes on the way from some of my favorite songwriters, Bahamas, The Secret Sisters, The Almond Betts Band, Langhorn Slim, and more. Thank you for telling folks about us. It means a lot. If you can, tune in to our Dust Bowl Revival Suede Home Holiday Fest, December 22nd, and stay safe and stay creative until that vaccine is in your veins. Here she is now, Celine Teoblucky of Under the Radar Podcast, featuring Fantastic Negrito. You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. Welcome to Episode 5. We're speaking to Fantastic Negrito. Have you lost your mind yet to get free? Time. Get free tonight. Yeah. 
Fantastic Negrito is the stage moniker of one Xavier de Frepolez. He gained fame as the first ever Tiny Desk contest winner in 2015 with his song Lost in a Crowd. A busker in a dapper suit who could sing the blues in the most captivating manner. It was just the sort of talent the contest was hoping to unearth. During the 90s, he had in fact a major label deal with Interscope Records. A close brush with gun violence had forced him to leave his home in the Bay Area and pursue his dreams of stardom in LA. Soon, he was signed by Prince's manager. But his career never quite took off. Then a near-fatal car crash would leave him in a coma. When he awoke after three weeks, he found his body had been put back together with metal pins. He had smashed the bones in his guitar-playing right hand and it was now a metal claw. Anyone familiar with Fantastic Negrito's story knows he's not one to dwell on his misfortune. He's gone on to win two Grammys for his debut, The Last Days of Oakland, and its follow-up, Please Don't Be Dead. His latest, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet?, speaks to this cultural moment in a more personal way. Today, he tells us how it's less about the big issues, but the mental health of his close friends and family as they try to navigate their way through challenging times. And oh, as we're in pandemic and not in a studio, please excuse some of the less than perfect audio and street sounds. There's only one fantastic Negrito in the world and I'm here with you. And my album is called, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? I'm coming to you straight from Oakland, California. How have you been coping with lockdown so far? Well, I think, you know, I'm coping with it just like I cope with everything else. I mean, you know, nothing's promised. And so we're, we have challenges sometimes in life and we got to deal with them. And I don't think about anything except for the challenge that is before me. Because everybody knows my mantra, take that bullshit and turn it into good shit. I live by it. You know, I die by it. It's, it's exactly how I feel about everything. So the first video that I made uh, entitled Chocolate Samurai, I crowdsourced because I asked people around the world on all the continents to send me whatever it is that they were doing in this uh, new challenging time of quarantine pandemic and came back with a really um, compelling video that helped illustrate throughout the world what people were doing to uh, cope with this challenge. And, you know, have you lost your mind yet? <laughs> That's the opening line on the, on the song. So it was very timely, but I try to stay very um, in tune with the vibrations of the earth and the world and society. And so, yeah. It's very prescient because you've been looking at everything that's going on in the world through your music for a while now and sort of also, you know, expressing it in your music. You haven't been shy about standing up there and using your platform. But what is a chocolate samurai? Chocolate samurai is really the spirit, the mythical figure that I've created in my own imagination as, as the one that takes on the ills of society, that takes on the things that aren't 
comfortable for people. He's a spiritual warrior. And he's out there um, encouraging the, the, the world village, the global village to, to keep on fighting, to keep on trying, no matter how challenging the obstacles are in this lifetime is that we garner the spirit and we garner the energy, make our, ourselves finely tuned with vibrations and we stand up to face uh, the, the challenges that, that are upon us. And, the, and there are many, and that's why I wrote the album, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? Because there's so many um, challenges out there. You know, there's COVID-19, quarantine. We're living in this age of, it's the age of misinformation. We, we thought we solved racism. No. So, you know, we've been sick all along. And I think only these challenges, only this pandemic has now revealed just how sick we really are. And so I think it's a great opportunity to collaborate with someone. It's a great opportunity to, to talk with someone that may have different views than you. It's a great opportunity to start a new project. It's a great opportunity to get together with your fellow human being and um, try to navigate through this in, insane maze. We should all find our inner chocolate samurai at this point in time. Yeah, I think so. I think so. He's just, I call him my spiritual warrior. And he was, um, I think that was one of the first songs that I recorded on the album. And, you know, I try to live through these characters. And I think um, it was called Chocolate. <laughs> like myself, I'm very chocolate. <laughs> okay. So um, I really enjoyed the album. It always takes me a while to really uh, get into your music um, I went to New Orleans partly because I spoke to you maybe four years ago I went to do the blues highway because I didn't think I understood the blues and so we all went on a family road trip because I, I wanted to just understand the music and I think you've always said to me you know you got to live a little to understand the blues I think so yeah and I kind of took that to heart so I want to talk about the album but a little bit I want to go back a little bit so you have a, a, a truly interesting upbringing so your family moved from like Waspy New England to East Oakland when you were 11 and you said you've come from a big family and you basically grew up on the streets in your teens. And you've also told me that it was a time, a, a Bay Area that you'll never forget. So if you could go back a little bit, Oakland in the mid 80s, there was like a real culture on the streets, right? Tell me a little bit about that time, that time of like hip hop and punk and boogaloo. What was it like for you? Was there a sense of possibility? Oh, absolutely. And I'm the eighth of 14 children. So I'm the middle child. And uh, yeah, I, I ran away from home when I was 12 or got kicked out. It's arg it's an argument there, what really happened. But I mm -hmm. never returned. And I was living on the streets at a very young age. And we're talking about the early 80s, not even the mid 80s. <laughs> and um, it's quite an extraordinary time because it was this combustion of... Uh, you know, the beginning of something very new, which was hip hop and uh, punk music and this this whole counterculture, this 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 force that was happening. You could you could feel it, you could taste it, and it was uh, quite extraordinary and, and quite unique. And we're still feeling those aftershocks to this day. I mean, hip hop is the best, biggest music in the world, hands down. Um, it is the new pop music, so. Um, but I was coming up at a time when it was completely, you know, music kind of for people on the outskirts of society, kind of the outcasts. 
you know, the people that were struggling were mm -hmm. expressing themselves, human expression, which is truly what we talk about understanding the blues. I always call what I do black roots music because mm -hmm. that's an amazing garden of blues, funk, soul, hip hop, jazz, rock and roll, uh, punk, um, you know, electronic, house music, like all these mediums that, uh, you know, that came from the African-American experience in this country. And, and as we can see, all that music is bas basically the soundtrack to the world that we live in. So, um, you know, coming from that tradition of human expression, which is really the, the, the therapeutic savior of all living beings, when we can embrace human expression, it saves us. It's what saved black folks. We were, you know, it was the greatest theft in the history of mankind from Africa, the transatlantic mm -hmm. slave trade, and, um, you know, surviving that for hundreds of years and uh, surviving the trauma of someone, you know, they come and they knock on your door and they may take your kids and sell them. Or they come knock on your door and, you know, they may take your spouse and say, mm, I think I want to fuck your spouse and rape them and um, mm -hmm. impregnate them and then maybe sell them. So living with that, that trauma of being treated as livestock was uh, it took human expression and music and voice and in the Caribbean and then uh, it took, you know, percussion, but it took, it, it took this expression mm -hmm. for these human beings that I are my ancestors to have the strength to survive. And I'm just, a, I, I'm just a, a byproduct of that. And um, it is always a great honor to honor them. I'm not doing anything extraordinary. I'm just merely harvesting the garden that was planted mm. hundreds of years ago and it continues to blossom and it continues to grow. Mm. So human expression just being, that's why I make albums. That's why I made Last Days of Oakland, Please Don't Be Dead. And now Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? Because... This is how we survive mentally. And have you lost your mind yet? Each song was about the mental health or wealth or illness of individual people that I knew. When you think about your time back then, there's obviously it was a bit of struggle living on the streets and all. And like you obviously had, you know, issues with your family. But what was something that really gave you joy at that time? Well, I think what gave me joy then is the same thing that gives me now, and that's uh, liberty. And I think that's liberation. I think uh, it's freedom, freedom of expression, and the freedom to uh, move freely about about the earth, and not just physically, but I mean move freely spiritually, which is the most important thing that, that we can covet. The home I was in, they were trying to force religion on me and force, force, force all these things on me. And I don't think that that's for everyone. I don't think that things should be forced upon people. So, um, you know, it's been a life struggle for me is it was to um, valiantly oppose tyranny. And I, I believe tyranny is upon us now mm -hmm. in a far greater way than I ever thought it would be, but it is upon us now. And, it is the time to struggle. Hmm. How old were you when you sort of started writing songs or singing or, or knew you had an inkling of being able to do this? I think you've told me about in the past about 
being in a summer camp for bad boys or something and you found yourself in the halls of Berkeley University. Yeah, was it around that time that you figured out or was it like on the streets that you sort of figured out, I can do this? Well, I was in the home for the bad boys home for a little bit before that. By this time, I was in a program called Upward Bound, which really wasn't for bad kids. It was for kids that thought they may want to go on to college. And so I did a talent show um, to a print song that was big back then. It was When Doves Cry. I won the talent show and I was on stage and I thought, wow, I think I'm, I can entertain people. But then I didn't know how to play an instrument. So then since the Upward Bound program was at UC Berkeley, I then found out that there was a music department. So I would sneak into the music department and, and pose as a UC student and then um, proceed to teach myself to play the piano by just listening to what people were playing around me. I didn't know what scales were at the time, but I found out later that I was playing scales. And that helped me kind of decode the piano. And then, you know, I did everything. I just started just doing things naturally, like singing and writing. And playing, it just came at about 17. Anyone who follows you, as you said just now, knows your motto about turning bad shit into good shit. You hold, you know, you say it at all your shows and you sing about it. Bullshit into good shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you've also um, talked about your mom's passing and your brother's death. What was it about that that made you think, oh, yeah, bad shit happens all the time? And if I were to just like wallow in it, I'd never get anywhere. I wouldn't get out of bed. Well, I, I grew up with 14 kids, siblings, so 13 siblings. I would, you know, there's 14 of us. So bad, you know, those sometimes there may not have been the best food to eat. You'd be, sometimes you didn't have clothing that fit you. You know, you'd be ridiculed. And we know that when you're very young, that that is a big thing when people ridicule you for your appearance. So it started very young for me. I was in New England at a time when there weren't any really many African-Americans at all. And so you got, I was really um, experienced some pretty uh, harsh racism and taunts. And, uh, you know, New England is pretty famous for being, you know, probably the most racist place in the, on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I had to say it. Mm -hmm. There are good things about it too, but, you know, I can't, lie about my experience sure. so that was traumatic um it was always trauma i think i grew up in trauma and i just it was there and i know that if you focused on that that you'd feel bad so i think i learned at a young age to not focus on trauma but always think about what could be done I always train myself to never think and to this day i'd never Think about what cannot be achieved. That, that's insane to me. It's always the opposite. You think about and you focus on what can be done. And from there to, you know, coming, growing up on the streets in Oakland and experience seeing so many deaths. The one, my sibling, 14, my cousin at 16, and many more. You just, you know, we had to be strong for other people. You learn to live your life for other people, too. It was far more fulfilling that way. And um, you know, losing my hand in an accident, that was also a time of just choosing. You, know, you had a fork in the road and you want to choose the positive, the, the enlightening one, the one that's giving you power and energy and happiness and joy, and you plug into that. Because the other thing is pretty depressing. 
in a downer, and I just I just didn't like that feeling. I think that um, that we have to surround ourselves with beautiful things. If we invite toxic people or things into our life, why are we expecting a party? We have to invite in the powerful, uplifting, beautiful things into our life, and then our lives can then reflect that. So. Now that's part of like the fantastic Negrito origin story. But when you first sort of uh, left Oakland and the Bay Area and you moved to LA, you know, and then you got a major label contract and they wanted you to be like the new prince, but at the same time, like gangster rap was starting to take hold. At that time, how did it affect that sense of who you were as a performer and what you wanted to do with your life? Well, I was always myself and I was always pretty... um much like wanting to embrace that, yeah, I'm different. Uh, you know, my dressing, my style, everything I do is different. I'm into upcycling. I took this old lady's hat and turned it into something amazing. And that's just how I feel, man. I surround myself with art and creation. And um, I realized that I may be the poster child out there for, uh, you know, people who are different, who are counted out. You weren't picked to be on the good team. For the people overlooked, I feel like I'm their guy. You know, I'm fantastic Negrito. I'm the the story is, you know, I was I started this when I was middle aged. I went out in the street, and I said, I don't care what you think. You, the the construct of um, you know, this society that we live in, it was telling me that you're middle aged. Your music's genre non specific. You dress like some kind of weirdo. Your lyrics aren't politically correct. What do you expect to do? And I said. Oh, and your name, Fantastic Negrito, makes white people uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, I expect to do what I always do, succeed. And I always say the people are my record company. So I, you know, I just went straight to the people and I went onto the streets. And here we are, three full-length albums later. You know, I'm, I'm not stopping. I'm not quitting. I'm only more inspired to do what I do. stand out with his own sense of style. Saturday Song, a track that he released back in the 90s, had a smooth neo-soul vibe and aligned him with Afrocentric alternatives to gangster rap like Arrested Development. The sound was different, but the socially charged lyrics were already present, and the disillusionment with record companies he would channel into creating his own scene. He made the most of his circumstance until the accident. Eventually, he would return to Oakland, build himself a new life, and start a family. For many years, he stopped playing music. Then one day, he found himself with his young infant son who was crying inconsolably. As he told the story, an old guitar that had been kicked under the sofa peeked out. He picked it up and started to strum it, and immediately his child stopped crying. From then, 
he taught himself to play several songs by the Beatles to keep his little one contented. He rediscovered music and before long, took to the streets to start busking. So when you started busking around at, in Oakland at the BART station and then you have this fantastic song Lost in a Crowd and then you submit it to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest and you wind up winning this contest and then you went on this sort of upward trajectory of like the full might of like Bob Boylan and NPR behind you and, and we were all so looking forward to you at Outside Lands in 2015 yeah. um, and it was like your big festival homecoming then it was like a no-show. On the day that he was scheduled to play, he was taken away in handcuffs by the San Francisco Police Department. The police had responded to a report of an illegal sale of artist passes. It turned out his young intern had tried to sell them without his boss knowing. Of course, the intern confessed his wrongdoing immediately, but they took Fantastic Negrito away as well. They handcuffed his hands painfully behind his back rather than in front, even after being told that he had a pin in his shoulder due to his car accident. At the time, we were witnessing the nascent rise of the Black Lives Matter movement after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the murder of Trayvon Martin. Many of us were yet to understand the extent of police brutality or institutional racism the way we do today, and Fantastic Negrito, he took it all in his stride. He returned to the festival the following year on a bigger stage and was one of the most anticipated acts. And that's another way that you've turned the bad shit into good shit. But for me, as somebody who was not from America, for me, it was like the first time when you were taken away in handcuffs. And then when I found the full story in the days after that, yes. I started to see, oh, there is a double standard here in America because as an outsider, you don't really know that there's a double standard because you see, you know, like black comedians, they were so yeah. popular or your um, sports people, they're all black and the musicians. And so you think you're, they're on a level playing field. You have no idea. Well, you got to think about that. All those people you just named, they're making a lot of money for other people. Mm -hmm. Think about that, right? Mm -hmm. All those entertainers, all those sports people, they're making other people, millionaires and rich. Now let's think about something else here. Didn't slavery make a lot of people millionaires and rich? Yep. So you just gotta think about, you know, there is a, one thing that's not a double standard as in America is that if you, like something I put on the album, <laughs> I put this thing on my new album, you know, is it justice in America? Oh, I love it, that. Yeah, yeah, just as long as you got some money. So, you know, America is really based on uh, money. You know, you want a black president? Sure. It's almost it's like this. You want a black president? Sure, nigger. There you, how about that for your li listeners? There you go. Mm -hmm. You know, you want, you want a, a bigoted, race-baiting president? Sure. We'll give you whatever you want in America, as long as it's making 
corporations rich, which are basically the new governments, there are no governments and there are no real presidents. What it is, is they are corporations. They control everything. Listen, you know, when you're shutting down a bunch of people and taking money out of the system and giving it to a few people, it's going to be problems. And we're, we're witnessing and we're living in uh, these problems now. Fantastic Negrito went on to release his debut, The Last Days of Oakland, and won his first Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album. Fiercely independent, he did it without any major label support, though they did come knocking. But the album's prologue set the stage for all the issues close to heart. This might not have been possible with major label executives over his shoulder. The last days of Oakland. The Black Panthers. The end of something. The beginning of something. The last days of Oakland. Uh, there's good in the old Oakland. There's good in the new Oakland. I love the new Oakland. New nice places. Let's make a sandwich. It's so expensive. Let's make a new baby. Just to survive? Yeah. The seeds were planted long ago. Let's watch the tree grow. The album's themes were big, of gentrification, disenfranchised communities, America's inability to reckon with its history of slavery. Where most artists might shirk away from these difficult issues, Fantastic Negrito took the bull by its horns. He wrote a song called The Niggas Song. Who can or cannot say that word is not as important to him as what is said. I hate this a history lesson for those of us who care to lean in. We hear a survivor talk about family killed by the Ku Klux Klan. It charts the migration of black people from the South to Chicago, then the West Coast for better lives, but then come drugs and gangs. These things don't happen in a vacuum. He pulls the lens out on the more profound, bigger picture of systemic racism inherent in our way of life and governance. At that time, 
We even had a black president in the White House. But as Fantastic Negrito had said from the start, as a spiritual warrior, he isn't here to wag his fingers at the guilty so they can look away. Instead, he wants people to talk openly about these issues, to face them, to begin the awkward journey to dealing with these ills, and hopefully make steps towards more meaningful change. Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pines. In the pines is a standout from the album. It was originally made famous by the legendary blues artist Led Belly. Fantastic Negrito anchors it with modern day grievances. Black girl, your man is gone. Now you travel the road alone. And you raise that child all by yourself. Then the policeman shot him down. Blues artists like Lit Belly, Skip James, and of course Robert Johnson who was famed for having made a pact with the devil to be the best blues guitarist in exchange for his soul. These men went on to inspire everyone from the Beatles to Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones to Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin. These titans then went on to inspire generations of musicians after them. And while many of these white artists and bands are now successful household names, the blues artists, rarely so. Many like Johnson and Lead Belly lived hard lives and died poor. With his music, Fantastic Negrito pays respect to these greats, and the hope is that other music lovers will also seek them out and learn their stories. Some of our modern-day heroes, such as the late Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, understood instinctively Fantastic Negrito's music and mission and took him on tour. Country star Sturgill Simpson would follow suit, introducing him to fans who may not ordinarily be seeking out music from the perspective of a black man. This, of course, aligned perfectly with the theme of his second album, Please Don't Be Dead, which was all about uniting people with the mighty blues riff. spoke before it was just about before the launch of your second album and you were talking about using the blues riff to bring people together yes. how's that working well i always every every record for me is a um 
completely different journey. I mean, none of my albums sound the same. I think on Please Don't Be Dead, it was a lot of about the blues riff. But on how, you know, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet, it was completely not about the, the, the uh, blues riff. I still love bringing people together. You just use different things. And I think on Have You Lost Your Mind Yet, it's much more micro than macro. The other albums were macro. They were big. Mm. Raging Against the System, The Last Days of Oakland, Gentrification, Displacement. You, you got to work three jobs to have a, you know, a life in America. I think Please Don't Be Dead was like a call to arms. You know, we're going to break down these chains, burn it down with the big um, guitar riffs. You know, very had the, had a rock feel to it, you know. I think um, this is a much funkier album. This is funky, so I don't know the mighty weapon on this album may be the Hammond B three organ. Maybe that's the, mm-hmm. the weapon. Maybe it's um, it was very ca- cathartic. You know, I, I wrote every bass line. I was like, this got to be a funky album, and I played all the all the bass lines like so thoroughly on this album. I think. Um, but the thing that is the weapon on this is the album is about mental health, mm. mental illness in a sense. Now, I don't mean the mental illness where the guy's walking on the street talking to himself, Celine. Guess what? That's easy. We all know that. Oh, he's talking to imaginary people. But I'm talking on this album, I'm talking about you. And I'm talking about your partner. And I'm talking about me. And I'm talking about my band members. I'm talking about my agent. And I'm talking about 12-year-old kids that play Fortnite. What I'm talking about on this album is the people we're functioning kind of mentally ill in a way. It's like we, we're bombarded every day, every day with all these traumatic images and all this misinformation or information. It's like, you know, this, this um. You know, say Black Lives Matter. It's like, why does that even exist? Oh, you're, you're talking about the police, a state-sponsored agency that's paid for by taxpayers where they're arbitrarily, arbitrarily um, you know, executing black citizens of the United States because the cops are scared, because the cops don't know how to police, because the cops are coming across people who are frustrated, people who are angry, uh, people who may be even mentally ill and the police are so terrified that they just shoot them. Um, you know, with that image over and over and over again, it's playing every day. I think that that does something to the psyche on all sides. I think that it does something very horrible to us mentally. Now, take this the idea that in America, on any given day, someone can walk into a kindergarten. Someone can walk into a church. Someone can walk into a supermarket. Someone can walk to a nightclub and just start shooting people. And what do we do? We go to Starbucks. We go, really, that happened? How many, 56? Okay, oh, 12 people got killed. Okay, what's on Netflix tonight, honey? What? Wait, wait, what? Like, we're completely, this is insanity. And another aspect of it was just, you know, the whole idea of the internet, which is you Google this, you Google that. You may know the capital of Uzbekistan, but you don't know anything about Uzbekistan. There's no depth in the society anymore. What are we really reading? What are we really taking our time to focus on, to study? I feel like we're being rained on with this shitstorm of um, just um, mental handicap. And I think it's really affected 
all of us, and I, and I said to people when I'm writing this, have you lost your mind yet? And I was talking about us. Like, what it, what's the break? What's the threshold? What's the threshold when we just go, all right, I'm done because this is too much. And I don't think that we're designed um, biologically, physiologically uh, to handle all this. And I think we're an over-medicated society because of it. How many people are depressed? How many times do you hear the word anxiety? I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. You know, I need Prozac. I need whatever, lithium, whatever. I mean, look at all of our star. Look at our guys. Look at, uh, speaking of Prince, look at him. Who would have known Prince? Really? Yeah. Look at um, Michael Jackson couldn't sleep. You know they, What about Chris Cornell? Who? Chris Cornell. Yeah, Chris Cornell. Tom Petty. You can just go down the list. All these titans taken down by basically prescription drugs. We're dealing with this new value system where our kids, you look at these kids and they're like, yeah, I like this. Why do you like it? Because it has 10 million followers. That's why that's a value system. I like this. Why do you like this? Because it has a million likes. And that's why. I tell my nephews and my son, I'm like, hey, Hitler would have millions of followers now if he had a social media account. So do we like that too? Pol Pot, all these guys. So, you know, we're faced with these challenges and I think that it's breaking us, you know, our, mentally, our psyche. And that's why, you know, I wanted to approach an album like this. It was the hardest album that I, that I um, ever wrote it because I was talking about people that I knew. And then I was collaborating and reaching out in a way that I hadn't. Like the song Searching for Captain Saberhole with E-40. Like, I'm the whore in that song. I'm talking about men and all of our double standards and all of our bullshit. And um, with um, working with Tank from Tank and the Bangers, they also won NPR Tiny Desk. I was, um, I was writing about some of these artists like Juice World, some of these big popular artists who had everything seemingly, but their songs were all about like depression and how many Percocet pills that they can consume and kind of like celebrating this whole culture of depression and misery. Meanwhile, you, you know, are pretty, pretty famous on a private jet and but we're celebrating depression. that I'm so happy I could cry with that song that collaboration I mean how did you do it did you did you just sort of think that I just want to do something with another fellow NPR win tiny desk contest winner or 
Did you want a female's voice somewhere? I mean, what was motivating you to kind of reach out to her? Well, first of all, I wanted to make history. I like being the first. I was the first Tiny Desk winner. I believe I was the first Grammy winner without a label that year. Um, I think Chance the Rapper too, but I won before Chance, so I'm the first. Um, and I wanted, to, I thought, you know, I was just a huge fan of Tank and the Bangers, and I thought, you know what? We got to make history. Why have we not collaborated? And um, I reached out to her, sent her a few things. She liked the idea, but when I sent her, I'm so happy I cried. That's when she came alive, like, whoa, this is um, you know, powerful. And the idea that I was taking the concept and just twisting it around, like, not so happy I'm crying tears of joy. I'm so happy I'm crying because my value system is wrong. I'm so happy I'm crying because I think that, I thought this car, I thought all these followers and likes were going to complete my happiness. But it doesn't. What completes our happiness is camaraderie, is fellowship, is being neighbor, is love, compassion, empathy. That completes our happiness. What do you think is our antidote to get out of this because we seem so stuck in this? Like we're talking about mental health, like we, everybody I'm sure does, we go through this up and down every day. Right now the sky is yellow because of all the fires and it feels completely apocalyptic. Um, and then you pick up your phone and it's like, you know, more bad news and don't even start on the White House. And so it's... um. I don't know. How, how do you do it? Like I've started a little garden. <laughs> you know, to, I, yeah, that's good. Yeah, to just sort of, you know, look at something and nurture something else. Uh, but what do you think? I mean, I mean, I guess it's a big thing to ask, this big sweeping question. Like what do you think is the antidote for us to get out of this kind of quagmire? And what are the little things that you do for yourself to like get out of this, to not feel so heavy-hearted all the time. Hey, I live on a farm. I have chickens and I grow a lot of food. So I'm not really the kind of person that's heavy-hearted. But I'm going to tell you the antidote. You know what? It's all okay. It's okay to feel down. It's okay to wake up and feel like shit. It's okay to feel like you may not, what's the purpose of life? I may not want to keep going. It's okay that you have challenges. It's okay that there's things happening. You know, that's life. You know, try being a Native American. You know, try that and waking up and your entire village is decimated. Your entire way of living is gone. You know, try being a, a slave and having to make it across the ocean with people puking and shitting on each other. Um, you know, try being a you know, in the Holocaust, Nazi Germany. Try surviving, you know, Pol Pot killing five million people in tiny in that tiny little country of Cambodia. I mean, you know, there's gonna be challenges in life. And these things are not even anything compared to all those things I just named. It's all right that you're going through bad things. Guess what? It's gonna build character. And when you survive these things, you become a much more valuable person on the planet. And the challenges that we have faced with, that defines our contribution to the planet. And it defines who we are. It makes us extremely valuable. So it's okay to go through all this. 
And we can allow ourselves to go through it without freaking out and medicating. Oh my God, I feel depressed. I think on the end of uh, the song uh, called Platypus Dipster. Yeah, I love that. You know, I, you know and I say, I feel bad. I feel down. Should I take Xanax? Like, no, motherfucker, no, you shouldn't. You should just feel down and it's okay. You know, bake a cake, write a song, plant some food, embrace it, and, you know, find ways to get out of it without medicating yourself. Because you're medicating, it's going to, when you get off that medication, that problem's still right there. So true. So I think it's okay. I wake up, I feel bad. I go, you know, it's all right. I feel bad today. I'm feeling so good. Let me put on some, let me play Stevie Wonder or something. I, you know, play some damn music. <laughs> Anything. Tell someone, communicate. And you know what? Stop letting mainstream media on both sides, left and right, dictate how you should feel. What slogan you should say. What's the slogan that you should scream at the other person? You know, that's insane. But I think people, you know, we're like fed, like, hey, you should say that. I want you to say this. You say Black Lives Matter, and you, you say All Lives Matter, and you say Blue Lives Matter. Everybody ready? It's going to be a circus. And I'll be in the middle, and I'll, I'll, I'll rake in all the money from advertisers. This is great. I've heard from I'm So Happy I Could Cry, which I love that track because of the soul of what the song was talking about as well. And I like Justice in America. I like how you had this sort of little interludes yeah. in between the music but apart from all that like uh, one of my other favorite songs was all up in my space it just because it's like it's got such a kind of groovy funkadelic feel to it and for me it was I'm like never completely sure when when people write songs what their message is what I took away from it was to take a break from social media you're like all up in my space stop trying to look for me I need a break just leave me alone <laughs> but what was your inspiration for the song? Each song, each moment, each idea on this album I wrote about people around me suffering, suffering from mental illness, not the obvious mental illness, like people talking to themselves on the streets, but just my friend, he's going through this. And I just would analyze the situation and I felt like I had really interesting people around me. And so I wrote about a friend of mine and... Um, you know, he had an uh, amazing situation and he just kind of just took it for granted. And then when it was gone, he was like, oh my God. And then he really wanted that situation to return, but he was so caught up in like Tinder and he was so caught up with the internet and he was so caught up with everything over there, which I believe is more mental illness. It's something that's telling you that what you have isn't valuable. And so... That's where it came from, like analyzing this very interesting person that I know that has had everything. But, you know, he didn't really understand how amazing it was until he was gone. Then he spent years trying to, you know, get that situation back. And and I, I loved the uh, the other part. He was like, you know, don't be all up on me. You know? All up in my space trying to find me. You know what I mean? That was, and the, the story is... um 
was 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 just about that. So but what I love when I'm since I, that was my position, every song was about an individual that I knew. I said, don't be all about me. I've been mistake trying to find me. So when I'm writing, every song I write is for my kids. Every song I write is a message to my kids. I thought if something happened to me, they could understand a lot of what this life has to offer and the anecdotes um, and the solutions in a lot of my songs. So um, the songs are based on each individual person in my family or a friend that... Uh, was really suffering from what I call just casual mental illness, functioning mental illness. In searching for Captain Save a Ho, a sort of update of the 90s classic by Bay Area rap legend and entrepreneur E-40, Fantastic Negrito takes aim at misogyny in the rap music industry and at himself. Never lamed up and I ain't never been no peanut. When I'm moving around in my region, I keep a thumper when I go real. I try to teach and preach to these suckers to stop doing that whole shit. But they're hella hard-headed and stubborn and they gonna wind up in some more shit. He calling himself a P, but he's a simp. A simp? Partner, you too polite, you gonna get pimped. If you heavy in the game, you can't be light. You can't turn a hoe into a housewife. A housewife. Searching for Captain Saver Ho. I really liked that idea. I know where the song came from, but I like the idea that that there's this thing out there with masculinity, ideas of masculinity that women need to be saved by men. When really you've twisted it, it's like it's really men that need some serious mental help. Oh yeah, we need some serious, yeah, more mental health. And a lot of that was just about me. A lot of guys like me, you know, we're just like, you know, we can go. I can go around the world. You know, as this, you know, rock and roll guy, you know, dressed and like, you know, have my way with, you know, women and people celebrate me. But, you know, I've had like female band members and if they did it, we'd like to like, oh my, like you're going from, you, you're doing that again and it's frowned upon. Yeah. So I just thought, and, and it, that was 
basically the concept of mm-hmm. it, just to uh, get in touch with a lot of my own bullshit, which is more mental conditioning, which is, you know, um, sexism, you know, is very, a very powerful tool, like racism, not the isms. You use those to subjugate people, put people in places so that you can um, you know, make a lot of money and do what you want to do. So that was my way of adjusting that song. And I had a lot of fun mm-hmm. do, you know, doing that song and uh, really happy to get E-40 on it. He's, for me, like the perfect example of that sort of artist that's not big in the mainstream sort of way, but he's so looked on as a, in the community, people that know his music. But also he's, it's not like he's small scale, like he, he, he's got businesses, he's got his own beer line and his own wine. It's like when we think about wine, we don't think about a black oh, yeah. R&B or rap artist. So it's like he's, he's really expanding our idea of, hey, you know, this is what people can do. Yeah. Right. I think it's the missing component of Black Lives Matter is black business, black entrepreneurship and teaching skills to our young black men and women. Because if you ever wanted to defund the police, all you got to do is let people have skills. Then they don't need the police. They won't be dealing with the police, you know. So we have to. It's something amazing. And he's a great role model of someone that, hey, man, I'm not asking you anything. And that's the way that Fantastic Negrito um, approached music. And I wasn't asking anybody to be put on. E-40 ain't asking nobody to put, get put on. I'm not asking you to accept me. I'm not even asking you if my life matters. That's insane to me. Like you, this construct in society doesn't determine what my value is. And the last thing is I don't need it. I don't need uh, any type of um, affirmation from some assholes. I don't need it. And I don't want it. So... Um, yeah, that's, I see him as just, yeah, just powerful, amazing. I, could, I was very happy that he connected with the song. And uh, we just shot a video. Unfortunately, like he's, we're using text in the video because it's COVID-19 and everybody not wanting to do videos together. But yeah, just doing stuff different. And like, you know, he did stuff different and he embodies the spirit of what a Bay Area artist is. Yeah. Um, so I noticed that you're on Cooking Vinyl now and it's interesting again for me because I think of them as like a indie rock label with the psychedelic furs and, you know, and of course they have Billy Bragg and people like that. And you're sort of an interesting addition to the roster, even though I can see some connection between Billy Bragg and yourself. But why did you sign with them? You know, my first record, I didn't have a um, record label. You know, when I did The Last Days of Vulcan, so... I just, they were, they act more like a partner. I think they let me, um, you know, keep my creative reign. They were fine. So it's the way I looked at it, just get a partner. It's not going to get, you know, step in the way of the mm-hmm. spiritual aspect of the music. And, um, you know, I think I've done a couple of great albums on uh, working with them. Because they now license um, the last days of Oakland too. So, you know, it's been a good little run. And now I'm, I'm uh I don't know if you know, but two weeks ago I had uh, mm-hmm. my acoustic guitar was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, I saw that. And that was a big moment for cooking vinyl for Gibson, for, uh, you know, protest music with my song in the pines. And um, Have You Lost Your Mind Yet? But hit number one on the on Billboard Blues. So celebrating good things. Yeah. So what does it mean for you as an artist to put out music during this like incredibly difficult time in history, 
you know, with everything we've talked about, the pandemic raging on, like an administration sort of entrenched in white supremacy and just sort of... They, lo- the, the- they love some white supremacy. <laughs> They're like, like, yeah. And not only that, but it's like there's so many racist, um, you know, occurrences. Like, I mean, I just saw one thing yesterday telling these, you know, these Asians go back to Asia. I saw this one, one on the internet today with... Uh, these white supremacists and these Mexicans. And I witnessed one in Oakland where this lady was telling these uh, Latino brothers, like, go back to where you came from like that. I think everything comes from the top. And, you know, this some administration is just whipping that shit up, man, because it works. Mm -hmm. They care about power. Mm -hmm. The corporations care about money. Mm -hmm. Like, you guys want to be racist? No problem. You want to be progressive? No problem. tell 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 us what you want. We just need the money, baby. You know, that's how, that's how it works. Yeah. So what does it mean for you being an artist, putting out music in this, like, incredibly difficult time? Well, I think it's incredibly uh, great. Music, artists, we're, we're made for these moments. For these difficult moments, you know, people grasp to our music. You know, like I said, the video I made that crowdsourced, people felt so happy. And I got so many, so much email about Oh my God, like this is so therapeutic. Like, I needed this. I feel like we can do it. Now I'm very optimistic. So it's a great opportunity to do amazing things in a crisis. You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Fantastic Negrito. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azeen Samari, with final mix by Carriot Harmon. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Till next time. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>